This is a Clark University podcast. Sometimes the history of sexuality is backward, right? So things actually get more strict, not less strict. We always assume that we're getting more and more progressive and we're not. The laws that have dropped since the Dobbs decision reflect extant views. Some people may not have realized that they were, for example, very pro-choice now that this option um, to have an abortion or many kinds of medical interventions is no longer available where they live. They may realize that their position may become clearer to them. It's seen by many as part of a long effort to discipline female sexuality. You know, it's not just women who are sort of getting pregnant, but it's often seen in that context that women should not be having sex, right? They shouldn't only be having sex for reproduction. And that's a really old um, desire argument. I mean, it goes back to the Hellenistic period, the Alexandrian rule, right? That the only, the only permissible way to have sex is to do so in marriage for the purposes of reproduction. Clark history professor Nina Kushner believes the reversal of Roe v. Wade last year is an example of how people think about sexuality in the present day. Nina teaches the history of sexuality, a course that analyzes who gets to determine what parts of human sexuality are illicit versus quote-unquote normal. Throughout history, a few groups have held that power. So, I mean, there's different institutions that determine it. So states, right? Before that, the church. And then, of course, you have science. It's hard when we think about our own time as context, where, you know, you have social media and you have so many sort of this multiplicity of sexual cultures, you know, even within a city, to think about the role of these big institutions. I mean, when you look at the history of, let's say, the policing of sodomy, the church thought it was a sin, but they weren't, you know, they wasn't that big a deal, and then it was a big deal, and then the state takes over the policing of that and makes it into a capital crime, and individuals are executed. And then in the in the 19th century, some of those punishments go down to just hard labor for a few years, which of course is horrible, but it isn't death. At the same time, you have sexologists and psychologists and psychiatrists as those fields emerge trying to help define what all these sort of different iterations of sort of deviancy are in their minds. And so they do this in cooperation with sort of individuals who sort of self-identify as being, and again, the word is deviant, meaning like statistically deviant or they're deviant from norms or not um, doing anything wrong. Um, and so then that sort of creates these categories that we now have. And what's really kind of cool is that this generation, like the last 10 years, they're just blowing those up. They're blowing them up and they're doing it really, really quickly in terms of language, in terms of ideologies, in terms of what it means to be anything or nothing or everything. Sort of an exciting moment. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. The history of sexuality field emerged in its modern form in the 1990s, mainly off the work of gay male academics. In the years since, studies have emerged on intersectionality and how fundamental ideas about race inform fundamental ideas about sexuality. Nina's course covers sexuality from 1750 to the present. 
So there's all these sort of sexual revolutions in the 1700s, the 1920s, the 1960s. We just read Rousseau. Rousseau is a French philosopher from the 18th century who wrote a lot of the critical works that have defined sort of aspects of modernity, like democracy, right? And he wrote this book on education, and he has this chapter on women. It's really horrible. It's like, the purpose of women is to delight men. I'm not kidding. So we read this because I'm like, look, we have to read this because we have to understand how fundamental ideas about gender and sort of hardening of gender lines, how this happened, and then how it got deployed in law, and then how it got internalized all the way up through like the 1960s. And so they're reading it and they're getting really mad. Rousseau was sort of beloved by women in the period that he wrote. So then that was an interesting, like, why, why is this the case? We had a really great discussion. And then, you know, I asked randomly if, if there's any way in which we could read the same text as a queer text. And the students came up with some really interesting ideas. Some of the old stuff is still kind of bringing about really sort of interesting discussion. Watching her mother work as a legislator in Rhode Island helped generate Nina's interest in this field. I grew up in a household with one parent who was an academic and the other who was um, a sort of a civil rights activist, and that was my mom. She was trying to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in sort of four categories. Housing, credit, public accommodation, and employment. And I think that credit and public accommodation were thought to be sort of the ones that might pass the quickest. By credit, it's like who gets to share a credit card with whom? Like who gets who's denied a credit card and why? And this may not seem like a big deal right now, but when you think back about how recent it was that women could have their own credit cards, it actually is a pretty important part of civil rights history. She was lobbying for women's reproductive rights and also lobbying and putting bills in to protect gay rights. And they didn't pass. They didn't, that bill didn't pass until actually quite recently. There's a psychiatrist who was gay and a doctor and some other sort of very progressive legislators, and they just kept putting it through and it kept failing. But it really sort of sparked an interest why the state allows you to do some things to your body or with your body, but not others. And it's also in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. And when I was in college, I worked for the internship in the Rhode Island Commission for Human Rights. And there was all these sort of AIDS discrimination cases. It's very prominent now. We're in the sort of the trans rights wave of the civil rights movement and sort of fourth wave feminism. But I was sort of, you know, I was young and it was really formative for me. For Nina and her students, the study of eugenics is one of the most intriguing parts of this course. I think it's really interesting how popular it was in the U.S. before the Second World War and how places like Clark, you know, would have been bringing in eugenic speakers and it would have been sort of normalized and interesting and students would have gone and been supportive. And then, of course, in the wake of World War II and the Holocaust, it's impossible to look at that history and not see its sort of radical, logical, abhorrent end. You have to look at it in the moment and sort of understand it in context and how people viewed it. But it also really brings out the ways in which the social was supported by the scientific. And all of this was seen through a lens of race and ability. And so eugenics are the moment where people of color, people who are belong to sexual minorities, women who are difficult, right? All of these people are sort of considered to be not good candidates for having children. 
uh, for one reason or another. And so I think it's like it kind of crystallizes a lot of the themes of the course. The ways in which science is really often just the pool of sort of social ideas around what is what is acceptable and what is good and is not the subjective like truth finding domain that that we hope it is. To learn more about history at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash history. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>